Section 14 of Psychotherapy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. Psychotherapy by Hugo Munsterberg. Chapter 10. The Mental Symptoms. Part 4. My experience indicates the best results where the suggestions are from the start directed as much against the unfavourable social conditions, with their temptations and impulses to imitation, as against the alcoholic beverages themselves. On the whole, it is easier to break the vicious drinking habits of the social drinker than those of the lonely drinker, a point which ought to be well considered in settling the complex problem of prohibition versus the temperance movement. The situation of alcoholism repeats itself in still more ruinous forms with morphinism and cocainism, vices which grow in this country to an alarming degree. The psychotherapeutic treatment of such drug habits demands much patience and much skilful adjustment to the psychological conditions. Its general difference from the treatment of alcoholism is given by the circumstance that any too rapid withdrawing of the drug is certainly dangerous, if the organism is adjusted to a relatively strong dose. On the other hand, I may say that I have not seen a single case in which a really patient and insistent treatment of morphinism has not been successful, even if the destructive dose of 40 grains a day had become habitual. The condition is only that the patient himself have the best will, a will which yet is not strong enough to win the fight without psychotherapeutic help. But no one ought to expect that the psychotherapist can secure miracles, like some of the pill cures which treat the drug fiend in three days. Moreover, neither physician nor patient ought to believe that the worst is to come at the beginning. On the contrary, it is the end which is hardest, the reduction of the small dose to nothing. As illustration, I give an extreme case. A man who was formerly stationmaster on a railroad had been operated on in a hospital after an accident, and as some pain in the hip remained which disturbed his sleep, the physician of the hospital gave him some morphine, and provided him with the material for morphine injection after leaving the hospital. Then began the usual story. He became more and more dependent upon his injection. The dose was steadily increased. He found unscrupulous physicians who yielded to his demand for morphine prescriptions. He lost his position with the railway by the growing effects of the morphine poisoning. He became divorced, sank lower and lower, his daily dose fluctuating between 35 and 40 grains a day. And when he came to me, he presented a picture of the lowest type of hopeless manhood. He spent practically the whole day in bed, and was only able to totter slowly along with a cane. He assured me that life was hell for him. He could not sleep, he could not eat, he could not think. He had made up his mind to commit suicide if I could not help him. I foresaw that it would in the best case demand months of insistent energy to make a man out of that unfortunate wreck. He had gone through three different morphine cures in three sanitariums, and none had helped him and every physician whom he had consulted had declared his case as beyond any physical cure. I decided to make the somewhat disproportionate sacrifice of time in order to study whether even such an extreme case of morphinism is accessible to psychotherapeutic treatment. Four months later, he left my laboratory looking like an athlete, strong and vigorous, joyful and energetic. For three weeks he had not received any morphine, had good appetite, slept well, and had happily married. As his wife was a trained nurse, she will take good care that no new slip shall ever occur. There was nothing remarkable in those four months of treatment. He was easily hypnotized, and I hypnotized him at first every day, then every second day, then every week. It was without difficulty that I reduced the forty grains to about six grains a day. Then the struggle began. 
to test the case as a strictly psychological problem i left the effort entirely to his own will that is i did not deprive him of the morphine supply but left the regulation in his own hands during that whole winter he had a bottle with a thousand morphine tablets standing on his desk thus he would have been entirely able to satisfy any craving but by his own will he followed my suggestions and never took more than i permitted it meant a terrible struggle the tortures which he had to pass through were perhaps worse than those which he had experienced at the time of his lowest downfall they came to a focus when he tried to go from five grains to three grains a day and then again when he approached half a grain from there he had to move to a fourth of a grain then to an eighth and even that had still to be divided into four different doses which were then reduced to three to two and finally to one dose and ultimately to injections of warm water a rapid increase in general strength and a return of appetite for food began when he had reached the five grain limit i did not allow on any occasion the introduction of a substitute on the other hand i added every day suggestions covering the various secondary symptoms especially the pains in the stomach and the feelings of faintness and the emotional depression there is no doubt that under favourable conditions especially if the dose of morphine is not too strong auto-suggestion can bring about a similar effect a reduction of ten per cent every week can be carried through if a pledge is given to oneself in a drowsy state the great value of auto-suggestion showed itself not seldom in the fact that morphinists who had applied to me by mail for a cure in the mistaken belief that i do work in a professional way for payment and who got from me a written reply that i could not receive them but that they can help themselves wrote to me that my letter gave them strength to reduce their dose considerably quite similar is the situation with cocainism or with the combination of morphine and cocaine which is so frequent nowadays with young physicians i have repeatedly seen cures where the case already gave the impression of insanity again i give a rather extreme case a physician had acquired the habit of using and misusing cocaine for the treatment of a disease of his nose the habit grew to a craving for cocaine while the cocaine itself poisoned the brain acoustical hallucinations began he heard voices from every corner of the room and on the street the voices took persecutory character he connected them with his brother living in europe heard his voice in the denunciations and developed a pathological system of ideas around the central thought that his brother had a telepathic influence on him his reason succumbed he lost all consciousness of delusion and believed himself really to be under the control of the absent brother when he came to me he had been without sleep and without food for several days and he was not seeking my help to get rid of the mental disturbance but to overcome the power of his older brother he did not connect the fear at all with his misuse of cocaine when i discovered the role which the cocaine played i determined to try the suggestive influence the more as i found that he was in a half hypnotic state as soon as he had entered my room i suggested to him to sleep and to take food and to reduce the cocaine dose by a fourth the next day he was an entirely different man by the effect of ten hours sleep and a large breakfast now i concentrated my efforts on the reduction of the cocaine after ten days of hypnotic treatment he gave up cocaine entirely after three weeks the voices disappeared and slowly the other symptoms faded away the pathological idea of the telepathic influence lasted a while after the voices had gone until this idea too yielded to suggestion it still took six weeks before he himself felt that he was entirely normal the way in which the average physician nowadays neglects the simple tool of suggestive treatment when it can be used for the protection of society is perhaps nowhere so reckless as in the case of the morphinist and cocainist to give a typical case of this neglect i may mention that of a highly intelligent young man who had been in the habit of using both cocaine and morphine for ten years when at his own request he was sent to a new york hospital 
He had been taking alternately morphine for a year or two, then cocaine for a year or two, and had sometimes alternated and sometimes combined both in an irregular way. When he entered the hospital in May 1908, he was in a cocaine period and was taking the enormous dose of 180 grains of cocaine every day. In the hospital, they withdrew the drug altogether. During the first weeks, he was entirely sleepless. They energetically refused him any substitutes, and after six weeks, he began to feel comfortable. He gained steadily in weight, and after three months, when he left, he had gained 50 pounds, felt entirely comfortable, and seemed in all respects normal again. Before 12 hours had passed after leaving the hospital, he had again taken 30 grains of cocaine and 10 grains of morphine, and this dose rapidly grew until after a few weeks it again reached 100 grains of cocaine and up to 60 grains of morphine a day. Then came the complete breakdown. If that man in the last two or three weeks of the hospital treatment, when he felt entirely comfortable and normal and had gained his normal weight, had received even a slight suggestive treatment suppressing any desire for cocaine or morphine, he would easily have been saved. To let such a man, after a drug career of ten years, go out again to the places of his old associations, where the desire had to be stirred up, is inexcusable at a time when psychotherapeutics has won its triumphs in this field. It might have been sufficient to give him preventive treatment at least for the first three days of his freedom, and such a case is typical of hundreds. The overstrong impulse and overstrong desire finds its counterpart in the abnormal lack of energy and lack of attention. The patient, and it is especially the neurasthenic patient, has lost his usual strength. He, shrink he shrinks from every undertaking, he cannot decide upon any action, he needs a disproportionate effort for the smallest task, and cannot concentrate his attention in spite of his best will. The varieties of this lack of power and inertia are familiar to every physician. They certainly often need much more than merely psychotherapeutic treatment, although on the physical side no schematic method is admissible. The laziness of the anemic needs a different treatment from the laziness of the exhausted, but in every case psychological factors can be of decisive influence, whatever the physical and chemical treatments besides them may be. A few letters may again illustrate the varieties. Here again there is no sharp demarcation line between the normal and the abnormal. Letters like the two following, for instance, are hardly letters of patients. They show a variation which is still entirely within normal limits, and yet a source of suffering. It is a disturbance which usually can be removed by psychotherapeutic means. I do almost everything with effort, nothing spontaneously. I have been writing for five years, but am a mood writer of the worst type. The mood comes at such uncertain times that I seem to be absolutely at the mercy of caprice. This might not in itself be a misfortune, but writing is my only calling, and I suffer the proverbial torments of lost spirits when I am idle. The necessity of driving myself to every piece of work, aggravated by the fact that my parents allowed my constitutional inertness to have full play, has hitherto prevented me from forming any regular habit of labour. I am now thirty-eight. Would you suppose that if I kept my nose to the grindstone for one, two, or three years, I might yet hope to work with some ease and regularity? That is, if I compelled myself to write a certain number of hours every day as a discipline, regardless of the quality of matter I produce, is there any probability that I might ultimately overcome the fearful paralysis that so often grips my faculties? Can constitutional indolence be overcome by determination? I put in a little time on a couch every day. When worried, I get neurasthenia and all kinds of phobias. Just now I am afraid to look at the newspapers on account of the cholera in St. Petersburg, and I have seen the time when I found it difficult to drink water after I had boiled it myself. Also, the next man is familiar to all of us. 
plainly we are told every man is born into the world to fill some purpose or at least be of some benefit to himself or his fellow-men for some reason i do not make friends among men i have not the zeal or ambition to carry or even begin a conversation that will interest the individual man i worry a great deal i have never been able to concentrate my mind to study and figure out problems i can read them zealously but apparently do not get to the bottom and cannot retain what i do read if i could just get hold of the power of thinking and dig out that tangible something that holds me back i could go forward and make myself what i know i should be but i feel that so far i am a total failure if i only had that one great gift the power of concentration and will-power i would make what i so much desire a success of myself a similar effect and yet psychologically a different condition exists where the lack of energy results from the suggestive power of the opposite producing a constant indecision i am thirty years old and nearly all my life since childhood i have been fearfully troubled with the habit of indecision and regretting whatever i do it has grown into a habit so fixed that at times i am fearful of losing my mind i feel anxious to do something and decide to do it then as soon as it is done i nearly go wild with regrets until i have to undo it if possible and then only to regret that i am this way about the most trifling things and about the most serious i can't perform any duty well in business and in social affairs it is always with me it has me in its clutches a horrible monster dragging me down my friends misinterpret me and wonder what i mean by doing so when all the time i want to do what is for the best and cannot for this tyrant who is ever present with me i will plod for hours and hours at a time and at every turn i am handicapped i am intelligent naturally and appear a perfect fool from the report of such chronic cases we may turn to the acute ones here a characteristic letter of a typical neurasthenic young modern poet these are my plans but i hardly think that i can carry them through although perhaps you can help me by suggestion i have the feeling that through the whole of last year my development did not go forward but backward it is as if by a mental or physical overstrain my whole personality has entered into a transition i have no joy in life no sensation in love no satisfaction in labour my will has become weak where it was strong i am lazy up to an absolute dislike of everything while i have been energy itself often i have only the one desire to end my life from mere fatigue if there had been any external reason for ending my life i should perhaps have done it long ago i am so apathetic that i no longer take myself seriously my successes do not please me the idea of writing anything gives me anxiety i have become less resisting more sweet more soft i should almost like to say more feminine i became infatuated with a girl simply because i knew that she hates all men the inaccessible is still the only thing which can stimulate me somewhat i have even written a poem on her but nothing can satisfy me in love i consider my state a disease of the will as a result of nervous exhaustion i must find someone who with kindly power reinforces my will system i need a strong mind it may be a man or a woman it would even be possible in the latter case that i might marry her even the writing of this letter has fatigued me so much that i should like best to sleep in moments like the present i should like best to throw myself down on the street or quickly sink into the ocean i regret having made the little points they look as if my expressions are a pose yet there are moods in which i am entirely normal and no one fancies what i am passing through i have even become superstitious lately are there perhaps beings which can absorb our energy perhaps another being has drunk up my energy authors run easily into such states here is another i am a neurasthenic and i am beginning to believe a professional one my object in writing is to ask concerning the advisability of my visiting you for treatment 
I am ready to take the next train if you say the word, if you believe you can help me. It seems that the regular practitioner, who is very irregular, cannot. If there is one good doctor I have not consulted, I would like to know his name. I was doing editorial work in X and broke down. Still, the doctor said that if I liked my work, I should go back to it and pitch in. I did. It lasted a few days, and then I had to give up altogether, couldn't grind out another word. Then to another doctor, also the best in the city. He told me to give up all work, which I did, and then I went on a farm for six months. That did not help me either. Later I went west and spent some time in the mountains. I felt no better there. Then I went to Arizona and lived in a tent out in the desert. That did not help me. There was always a sensation of exhaustion, and any physical exertion put me on my back, even when it was light and pleasant exercise. Then I went to California. It did me little good. It is a perfect paradise for anyone who has not got neurasthenia. I still have not got myself in hand. I cannot do or say or write just what I wish, and cannot concentrate my thoughts. To try to read a book is punishment, because I forget as fast as I read. And so on. I answered him certainly not to come, but tried to induce some auto-suggestions. A few weeks later he wrote me, Ever since you wrote me I am now feeling somewhat improved. Yet I cannot judge how far the improvement belonged to the psychical factor only, inasmuch as I had advised him also to take some bromides. The really effective treatment would have been heterosuggestion, and I had no time to enter into the case. Where direct suggestion is used, the effect is often surprising. A young lawyer, after a period of overwork, had come to a state of complete lack of energy. He could not find strength to write a letter, and he came to me at a day when he did not see any way but suicide open for himself. He complained that, as soon as he began to grasp a thought, it was evaporating. He stared absently about the room and felt sure that he would never again achieve anything. He had not even the energy to read the newspaper. Each time waking in him the pleasure in a definite piece of work, at first simply in a novel which he was to read, then in some letters which he was to write, and then in his professional work. There was always an interval of three days. The fourth time he declared himself that the hypnotic influence was unnecessary, as he felt that he was again in the midst of his work. As a rule, the effect is a much slower one, but if all personal factors are well considered, and especially physical disturbances are excluded, the result is usually satisfactory. Very different from such neurasthenics, of course, is the lack of attention in the feeble-minded, and suggestion of the ordinary type is hardly advisable, but it is surprising how much can be reached by a systematic physical regime. I give one typical instance, representative of many. A boy of twelve years, when he was brought to me, showed the mental powers of a stupid child of four. In a silly way, he repeated every question which he heard without answering it. He talked steadily to himself in a nonsensical manner, mostly repeating nursery rhymes without end, never holding his attention to anything in the room, giving the impression that there was no attention whatever. The boy was a child of rich parents, he had his own teachers, but was for the large part of the year under the influence of the parents only, who very naturally yielded to every desire of the unfortunate child. I insisted on a complete change of the education. It was my effort to build up the mind by a rigorous training and by development of the power of inhibition. I absolutely forbade any meaningless material like the nursery rhymes, insisted that the child should never be allowed to talk to himself, and whenever he began to speak to himself he was to be addressed sharply and if he yet went on, to be slapped on his hands. In the same way he was not allowed to repeat a question, but the question was repeated until he answered it, the question always formulated in simple words. He was forced to go through simple reading and writing without being allowed to make his silly diversions. His whole life was brought under strict discipline, and no parental indulgence was permitted. Six months later the child was completely changed. It seemed as if he had gone through an improvement of three years, 
I regulated the whole of his elementary studies in accordance with the successful principle. The training of inhibition stood in the foreground, and every haphazard reaction was severely rebuked. The summer vacations spent with the parents in the fashionable surroundings, to be sure, had always a retarding influence, but the main part of the year in which it was possible to carry through the strict discipline showed such steady and inspiring progress that the boy, while of course feeble-minded for life, can yet live externally a harmonious life. A systematic training of the power of inhibition is indeed the fundamental factor in all psychotherapeutic treatment when the disturbance is in the volitional sphere, but the inhibition is secured most safely by reinforcement of the antagonistic attitude. From these volitional variations on the one side, from the ideational disturbances on the other, only a few steps lead to those dissociations of the personality which are characteristic of many graver cases of hysteria. But to give to them any adequate analysis, it would be insufficient to refer in this brief way to particular cases. Psychopathological literature possesses some excellent analyses of such complex disturbances. As I said before, I abstain entirely here from such complex phenomena, as they enter too seldom into the sphere of the practitioner, and as the bewildering manifoldness of their symptoms does not allow us so easily to recognize the fundamental principles which alone were to be illustrated by our short survey of practical cases. End of chapter 10